Hello everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Changing the Climate, a show where we talk about the changing world around us and how we can make it better. Brought to you by Climate Change Realty. All right, hello everyone. We are back for another episode. I am very lucky to have Mr. Mark Steele on the show. Mark, thanks so much for being here. Thank you, Ethan. Uh, you're very welcome, man. Yeah, I always just love to get the podcast started, just getting a little bit of background on who you are and how you got to be doing what you are doing today, whatever it may be. Well, I mean, is that a cue then? It's take a cue. It. Take it away. Uh, wow. I'm a lot of, <laughs> a lot of things. Uh, uh, I moved to Colorado in... 1991 after graduating from college um thought i'd come out for a ski season and i moved to telluride and uh 10 years later i ended up leaving finally and moving back to new england i'm from massachusetts east coast um and but in that time uh much due to uh a little stint i did in boulder in the mid 90s of coming down with my band um, I had a band, a uh, funk rock jam band, and we decided if we wanted to be super pro, we needed to move to Boulder, like our friends, the String Cheese Incident and Zuba and some other bands that uh, were big in Telluride at that time. And uh, I did take a couple of continuing ed courses at uh, CU, one oh. in Director, which uh, is the multimedia authoring tool where you design interactive CD-ROMs, which were probably before your time, but- Interactive uh, CD, no, 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 no. I used to play like Candyland and Legoland on the PC. Yeah, so it's, you know, creating interactive interfaces and that, that was the predecessor to Flash. Okay. So, um, and I also did, uh, did a course in Quark Express, the, the industry standard uh, desktop publishing layout program. And with that, I ended up moving back to Telluride to work for the Telluride Daily Planet and laying out the paper. Cool. And uh, designing ads for advertisers and doing a lot of work that way, which was great. It really kept me connected with the community and the businesses and what was going on in the news. Um, and just within a couple of years, um, I left and started, helped launch a magazine called Mountain Freak mm -hmm. and Mountain Freak was a full color uh, kind of alternative mountain culture rag uh, that came out of kind of a dirtbag culture but was getting more sophisticated so it was really a crossover between Outside Magazine and uh, Utney Reader and Mother Jones and Powder Magazine say or something so what we kind of work were you doing on it? Uh, I did all the graphic design, all the layout, and the creative direction, and um, oversaw photo editing. And so basically, whatever you saw in the magazine, I put there. Um, That's pretty cool. And it was a great experience because we really kind of learned an awful lot and are, had this passion to um, really get to talk about the world that we were living in and how to keep it in there and how to make it better. Um, so that's what the show is about. It was, yeah, it was, and, and being in 
the mountain metaphor was really for people who choose um, a lifestyle or a place that is challenging and, um, right. and how to make that work and how to live with the land, how to live in nature. So we had environmental political news, uh, sustainable living section, um, a fiction section and, and a, a gallery that was not just a photo gallery like Powder Magazine, it was art. Yeah. And uh, it was a really kind of cutting edge magazine. Um, we were kind of caught in a stoner niche for a while. Hear it. Had a hard time getting getting advertising because they didn't know, you know, who, who our market was. It was this like the climb climbing uh, companies would be in Rock and Ice or another climbing magazine, the skiing company yeah. would be in Powder or whatever. And so we found our main advertisers were Patagonia and the Body Shop and new companies that nobody heard of like Nativa and Guayaquil Yerba Mate, which are now huge companies, but back then nobody had heard of them and they took a chance with us. How many people Uh, were on your team? We had about five people, a publisher, um, kind of lead editors and me and my best friend and housemate who's our photo editor, Brett Schreckengast, amazing photographer who still lives outside Telluride. Um, and actually Hillary um, White Cooper, who was the publisher, she's still in Telluride and she is a county um, commissioner. So um, it was it was a great learning experience. It, it you know, gave us a chance to publish really great stories of what people were doing we we had stories on permaculture and solar power and yoga and very cool hemp and we printed a section of the magazine on hemp paper um but it was it was a little bit before its time not that any of these concepts were new people have been talking about them since the 70s really but mainstream they weren't really set in yet and it was also a challenging time because Printing a physical magazine is a huge, there's huge costs and huge waste involved. And um, this was before the internet really had taken full control. So um, we didn't really have as much uh, web publishing going on then. So right. it, was, it, was, it was challenging and I couldn't, you know, it didn't pay the bills for me. So finally I left in 2000 and moved back to uh, New England, lived in Maine for four years before no kidding. Actually, turning around, going back to Telluride um, in order to work on helping this man that my wife and I met, uh, who wanted to launch a nonprofit to raise money for safe drinking water projects around the world. Is this the Blue Planet Network? And that is Blue Planet, originally Blue Planet Run, because his concept was to create a running race around the world that would capture the attention of people everywhere and focus it on this crisis where you know, almost 20% of the people on the planet didn't have access to real clean, real safe, clean, reliable drinking water. Yeah. And um, so we started raising money and for water projects and realized that actually our best, better, we were best uh, place to really focus was in creating this network and a platform for managing the, um, uh, the process for NGOs all over the world to create a project plan and apply for funding, and then NGO, to monitor, not uh, non-government organizations, organizations around the 
worlds and more kind of small. I mean, we, part of the network was Water Aid, which is huge and Water for People, it's actually based out of Denver. That's quite big. Um, but also a lot of little, little organizations um, like Nicaragua and, um, and Rwanda, uh, in all over Africa, Africa, countries, yeah. and and in India, so yeah. um, we really focused on creating that platform, and so we eventually had the largest database of water project information in the world. No kidding. And what we were doing that nobody else was doing was actually tracking where a project was implemented, what the status of it was and uh, even costs and what went into it and how it mm -hmm. was done. And the, the, the concept behind it was that we needed hundreds of thousands of projects in order to do it right in these communities. Whereas the World Bank or the UN, they would be focused on a large municipal water treatment plant that would serve a million people in a city. And what that would do is just bring people from the rural communities into the city and overpopulate them. And, so these small communities that weren't being helped, it was it, they, what they really needed was a small improved borehole, borehole well or um, yeah. a rain harvesting system off of the school, say, off the rooftop, um, and really simple solutions. So these were five, ten thousand dollar projects. And the, is this when you had moved back to Colorado at this point? This is two thousand four yeah, time. Yeah, back to Telluride, and. Um, my colleague Rajesh Shah, who actually was born in India, he really came up with this concept of, of crowdsourcing it and oh. putting, putting it up in the, the, the power of the crowd of this community of other NGOs. So we did a peer-to-peer -peer network where one organization would peer review the other's request for funding, basically their project description. And we were trying yeah. to use that in order to really build best practices and have all the different groups sharing information on what really worked um, yeah. and then making it very transparent. And we thought this was going to really crack uh, the code and, and fix the industry and this crisis. Um, but what we found was that nonprofits, especially big um, foundations, Gates Foundation and Omidyar and uh, Hilton, uh, Clinton, they were all pretty resistant to having that much transparency. And Shocker. Um, when you're doing a lot of funding for people, you want to be able to say, we, we gave safe drinking water to uh, 100,000 people and not to say, well, we created a project that served 100,000 people and two years later it stopped working. But I have a question. The standard. So when you say you were working, first off, was this your, was this a side project or was the, did this become your main, your main, your main? Uh, this became my main thing. That's after very after cool, leaving the cool. magazine, I basically had the skills to, I, was, I just started my own graphic design business and awesome. web development business. But I also, with that training from CU, I, I really focused on flash development. And so I had a really great niche. Web probably blowing up that time. In the yeah. So for about four or five years, yeah, 2000 to 2005 or whatever, six, uh, all I did was build flash websites and they were cutting edge, beautiful, you know, all, all look different and all created an interesting interface where you could dive right into the, 
content and understand the navigation of it. Gotcha. Have more video game type kind of interface. And uh, that was great until Apple devices um, came out and Apple decided that they didn't want uh, plug-in draining battery power. Interesting. And also, there was the, the problem when you have tab tablets and phones, you don't have the same mouse over experience mm -hmm. of dragging your mouse around, which Flash really relied on. So um, they basically killed my my niche. And Sorry to hear that. So I, monopolies. I, I moved into doing things the other way. But that was also right at the time that I started working full time with Blue Planet Ron, and then we changed the name to Blue Planet Network. Gotcha. And I did that for about 10 years before awesome. deciding if I'm gonna work for nonprofits, I'd like to focus it on uh, problems that really impact my, my family here. Yeah, so, so speaking of problems, you mentioned before when you were talking about the work in uh, Blue Planet Run, that was what it was called at the time, you said you were trying to work on this big problem. And I'm, I'm curious, are you referring to the lack of clean water being distributed to people? Or are you talking about the lack of transparency or connection between all these organizations trying to do the same thing? Uh, yeah, that's, that's a really good point, because it's both of those things. Um, sure. the, the problem was not technological. Um, it's pretty easy to dig a well, I mean, if you have the labor to do it and, um, and you can use sand basically to filter water. Um, so it was creating the education and the incentives and the know-how and the political will to actually start making this happen. Mm -hmm. um, there are a lot of problems uh, like culturally around it. There's a lot of places in the world where women um, spend four hours a day collecting water to, to drink and do laundry and do everything. And they live in communities where the men don't want them to not have to spend four hours a day doing that. And so they're actually kind of preventing these projects from happening. And then what we found is some of the biggest hurdles that we'd have are actually parts of the community not wanting this, not wanting to give the freedom to um, the women. And so yeah. it really became kind of a women's rights issue for us. And that's where we got a lot of uh, support and funding cool. um, and also education because this allowed kids to go to school if they weren't collecting water for two hours in the morning and then the afternoon. So very cool. Um, so there were a lot of things around that, uh, the, but like you said, the other part is how then do we do this right? And what was going on, we found, um, is all these well-meaning organizations are going in and doing projects that nobody asked for, nobody gets a sense of ownership on, and nobody understands how to use. In foreign countries? Yes. Yeah, so, well, just come on in, just walk in to the country. Yeah, we go and in, we're going to we're going to give you a well because you need safe drinking water and they would dig it and put it in. And three years later, it would stop working or, or a little pin and the pump would break. And nobody knows and the how to community fix would say, well, um, those white people will come back and, and fix their well. Huh. And they never were taught how to use it, why they needed it or um, how to maintain it. They never given the sense of ownership. And so the best practices we were trying to create, were to find somebody in the community who wanted to be the liaison or be part of this. Mm -hmm. um, really make sure that education was part of it 
and that there was some buy-in from the community, either financially or for, through labor, and that it was clear on how it was going to be maintained and there was a program to check up on it and check on things. And so that's what we created um, with cool. the Pure Water Exchange and which we were trying to you know, drive with um, yeah. Blue Planet Network. So that whole experience then for me moving ahead and back into while well, we were at Bol we had moved to Boulder um, for the second half of the Blue Planet Network um, experience for me. Yeah. And so when I finally found somebody kind of to replace me and mm -hmm. phase myself out and started focusing more back on my, my freelance work and also on putting in time with local nonprofits, I started, um, a friend of mine asked me to co-lead 350 Boulder chapter. Excellent. And Definitely so, tell me a bit about that. Um, so. Who, are you allowed to say who your friend was? Um, yes, Elizabeth Gick. Actually, I knew her from Telluride. And she, she a co-lead co of 350 Boulder County? She was, and she moved, She had moved to Boulder as well and got involved. And they were looking for somebody who would step up and kind of lead, lead the group. So she didn't yeah. really do it alone. I didn't want to do it alone, but we decided we would do it together. Beautiful. Um, 350 Colorado um, was created by Micah Parkin. She's been on the show? Who is probably the most um, inspiring human being I've met yeah, virtually. Yeah, <laughs> and active person that I know. Um, yeah. She is a one-person army, um, but has been really working on building that out, giving, giving the handing the reins over to other people. And so yeah. um, 350 Colorado is its own um, 501c3 nonprofit. It is, um, it's obviously related to 350.org. Do you want to remind the, the, the listeners what 350.org is and what their goals are? Well, um, 350.org is a bad name for a great organization. It had <laughs> a good meaning to it. Um, Bill McKibben, who is an amazing writer and journalist from Vermont, really focused on climate change and identified it and was writing about it 20 years ago and trying to raise the alarm and not getting much attention. Um, okay. So decided to get some students from Middlebury and start up um, an organization to educate and promote um, more renewable energy and this shift away from fossil fuels mostly and they were really one of the I think most successful global nonprofits that I've seen or that I've watched grow and Growth. they did it by collaborating with all the other nonprofits Greenpeace and connected Fourth action network and all these great groups out there and sharing with them saying we yeah. want to be part of this will you put your name on this will you share this with your your audience and really the, the biggest thing that they did was have people come together and send a message out largely well, at first really using photos of here's the people on the beach that is now you know dropping below sea level and uh and here's 100 people on the beach spelling out something with flags or whatever. Um, mm -hmm. Or here's people and, and, and showing that all around the world, people are connected to this crisis around um, climate change. Yeah. So 
Um, 350 Colorado is really focused on all of those things of uh, moving away from fossil fuels and moving to renewable solutions to um, doing some lobbying work, mm -hmm. uh, um, home, you know, home energy efficiency projects, kind of really a pretty Variety. wide gamut of things, um, but largely and kind of mostly focused on divestment from fossil fuel mm -hmm. funding and, um, and moving away from fracking. How long ago did you did you start 350 Boulder County? Well, 350 Boulder County was already started. That must have been oh, it was. Um, when co I was My a co-lead was five years ago, I guess. Cool. Yeah. And then um, three or four years ago was when in one of those meetings, one of the meetings that we had at Alfalfa's in the meeting room there that they used to let... Um, us have meetings the old times community service which um you know i'm sure they would still do now but um, sure uh i put it out there that you know largely coming from that experience of blue planet network is i was frustrated with all these different nonprofits out there with no coordination and no collaboration right. and no transparency and no um you know time synced timing or what we're working on sharing goals and i said i'd like to create a platform with a calendar for putting everybody's events on there and also a, a list of all who all the groups are and what they're doing and um i said Does anybody want to anybody willing to volunteer and work on that with me and um, yeah one guy in the audience in the group said yeah i'll do that with you um mm -hmm. his name was damien bogdanovich and uh he i met with him and we figured out how we could do it for really efficiently um, using WordPress and a bunch of uh, open source web tools and plugins yep. and make it happen. And we just needed to figure out where this would go because we didn't want it to be under the 350 Colorado umbrella, which would make it a little bit too political. And we wanted it to be really yeah. for the people and um, by the people. And so looked around a little bit and I had been to um, some some uh, event at the impact hub and what is that at the impact hub which is on which was on Broadway down off of uh, Canyon between Canyon and Pearl and um, okay and Walnut um, shared workspace um, that had a lot of environmental and technology organizations. Um, and also had the Impact Hub Academy, which was kind of an incubator for launching new, kind of more green um, business concepts. And going on right there was something called the um, C3 Boulder, the Cultural Climate Collaborative. Um, I got the C's in the right order there, but um, <laughs> we're like, well, what is this? And started looking into it and it turned out they had been focused on doing exactly the same thing that we wanted to do. Yeah. Had been doing, working on it for really a year, but hadn't put together a website yet. And that's, and we went to them, Damien and I went and met with Emma Ruffin, who was leading that okay. charge and said, well, that's what we want to do too. And we're like, where are you? And she said, well, we just have, we don't have a developer. We don't really know how to do that or have the funding to do that yet. And, and Damien and I were like, well, we're, we're just going to build it. 
Yeah. So we built it and it immediately had a space. And, and it is? And a whole, um, a whole board of advisors basically. Mm-hmm. And um, so within a few months we launched that and had um, a really receptive audience right, oh, like right off the bat to yeah. get in. And so that, so, and then we had a name for it because they had already thought, well, how about this name, Boulder.Earth? And that was right yeah. about when these other vanity, ex, vanity plate ex, um, domain extensions had come out. Like uh-huh. So that's the- I've answer. never seen that before. I've only seen com.com.org or .net. I don't know how you guys manage that. Well, they're all out there now. I don't know that they're the really the best thing to have, but- um, <laughs> Uh, and, um, cause it is a little confusing, sure. but, um, that's what we called it. And we, you know, call it a dynamic grassroots website created for and by the community to foster awareness, collaboration, and connectivity to increase to, for increased impact on environmental gotcha. and social justice in Boulder, Colorado. Yeah. I'm actually reading off the homepage. I see that. So well, that okay. Mark, thank you so much for sharing your story. And it gives me a lot of, of insight on how you got, by the way, we, we've been connected through boulder.earth. I reached out to the website and Mark got back to me. And I'm, I'm as you're telling the story of how you've got to be doing what you're doing today, I'm, I'm noticing the continual trend and theme of how there are these opportunities we have, whether it's building wells or fixing the environment or making these big changes that lots of people are excited about. Some of them like yourself who are willing to dedicate their career to it. But then you look, you know, whatever it may be, maybe in your case with boulder.earth, you found someone down the street who was trying to do the same thing, but maybe you find someone in New York who's trying to do it or someone in Tokyo and we're all trying to do the same thing. But there's this lack of connection and it's so ironic because we have these amazing mediums like podcasts and websites and text messages and social media but it almost seems like we're we're more separated than ever by these so um yeah i guess i just want to talk about this because it seems to be a, a trend throughout your your career is is trying to p- piece these people together so we because we all seem to be you know we all want a better world we're all dedicated to you know having a positive impact it be it in our community or on the climate or whatever and i'm just i am i like you i'm also trying to find a way to connect us all together so because you know separate it's like that analogy that the sensei take he takes like one stick and he breaks it in half and then he takes like 10 sticks and then you can't break it you know what i'm saying yeah um yeah these this this is why i think for me being over 50 and feeling like i i have more wisdom and knowledge and tools to understand things than i did when i was out of college and thought i was the smartest person around and um Mm -hmm. now i really have seen what you know what the real world is and yeah that evaporated that feeling of being you know a know-it-all has evaporated quite quickly every year in college it, i got less and less confident that yeah I actually I think probably <laughs> there for me too yeah crowding myself with geniuses and being like Whoa. absolutely um but yeah so a huge part of it i mean i think in general most people mean well and want to do something that actually supports life on this earth right um just we we don't know how to do it 
we have a lot of ingrained um, beliefs that prevent us from really moving into an area or, or, or being satisfied with doing less bad instead of doing good. And we have a connectivity problem, even though everybody mm -hmm. now is more connected than ever. Um, it, we have lost really the ability to, uh, well, especially over the past four years to determine what truth is and to have right. dialogue, real dialogue where um, you discuss them because there, there are no black and white um, answers out there or black and white problems. Um, there's a lot of gray areas and you have to compromise and figure out um, things. There's paradoxes in just about every good, good solution out there. Um, yeah, I agree. So, and that, that's largely too, um, you know, the impetus for uh, Boulder.Earth is how do we create a space where we can have more discussion and dialogue and where mm -hmm. it's not just a set of 20 word tweets that don't really give the full picture and then can be misinterpreted. Right. And right now, uh, Boulder.Earth is really just a physical website right, and right. it needs to go beyond that into facilitating work on the ground with actual people and groups and um, and have some more real goals where we can start acting more as say the conductor of the orchestra with all these moving with all these different instruments to make you know bigger sound and a more beautiful piece um, or the other way I see it is kind of like being um, the coach for a sports team. And right now we have lots of little groups out there that have decided, well, we're, we're gonna go play shortstop against the New York Yankees mm -hmm. and against say the oil industry. And you know, you can't beat the Yankees with just one short one shortstop. So <laughs> somehow we have to find the third baseman, second baseman, first baseman, pitcher, and the outfielders, catcher, team. Get them all together, working together as a team, and knowing what each of what each of their roles are, and that none of them are going to do it alone, and every one of them is really valuable. And yeah, how do we get you all in sync and um, start start getting really having some real effective action? Yeah. And they also need to train together, learn together and grow together because experiences with others is really what builds relationships. And you can't just grab a bunch of like, if you take all the best positions from each college football team and put them together and say, go play the buffs, like they're, they're probably going to lose because they, they just don't know how to work together. And that's kind of what we're talking about. I'm, I'm curious what you think about using, I, before I get into that, I mean, there's, I, I kind of try to simplify this issue as best as I can because this show is mostly about the, the topic of climate change. But lately, I've been getting into other topics like loss of biodiversity and plastic pollution as well, which is kind of related. But I, I kind of see it as these three large entities that need to work in synchrony, and, and that's the government, um, businesses, and then people. I'm just curious what your thoughts are uh, as far because when I, I was saying that a lot in the first few episodes, and I'm realizing that people are people run businesses are made of people and governments are run by people as well so it is it all just does come down to to these people but i'm curious your thoughts on the government versus like the businesses sure um that's exactly you know where we've we started with the um organizations 
mostly mm-hmm. being nonprofits and uh, and also some programs. Um, yeah, that aren't even full organizations. And then connecting that with the government, the the city of Boulder and Boulder County, um, and then also with institutions. So you have schools yeah. and the university and the labs, which are you know a big part of Boulder. Um, where we haven't gone yet is then building in the side for businesses. And yes, so we say, okay, well, yeah, so exactly. So you're, you will be kind of one of the starting points. We have a couple others that really fit the bill yeah. um, that would like to put in there. But um, my original vision for Bullet on Earth was that there would be some kind of, it would mean something. So there would be some sort of pledge or commitment and, it could be as simple as saying, yeah, I'm, I'm in for doing the most that I can to ensure that we are net zero or have created a sustainable community by the year 2000, fill in the blank. Like yeah. And um, just to know that people are on board and willing to keep track of what that's going to take and to gauge where they are in terms of progress and to um to go for it and to go for it together and learn from each other and celebrate success rather than just being afraid of changing which is really more of what we have going on is stagnant like just oh it's too expensive we can't do that and it's like when you really look at it it's less expensive and there's no way around doing it and it is the future and we can only wait too long and finally get there and be like well it's a little too late yeah Um, but we need to get all those groups working together so it'd be nice if we had what it means to be a real you know whether you call it a green business in boulder or a different term um what that means how it fits into the city's climate goals and how it works with the people and um, we're actually working on a new phase of things of mapping out what we kind of call the landscape of, of climate action. But back to what you said, you know, we kind of started with this climate focus, but all of these issues are, are part of one bigger picture, which is how do you create a real sustainable community? Sure. Um, and use sustainable is kind of a tough term to use because we're kind of past the time that we can be talking about sustainable and now we need to regenerate so there's got to be part of that but if the goal is to have a sustainable community you're going you know that's a that's a good goal to have knowing that there's got to be a lot of regeneration that goes in between getting there but upon getting there we want to make sure that whatever we're doing and relying on for work and for play actually creates as much good for the environment as harm. So um, that's not an easy thing to do. Um, It's a pretty simple concept. (laughs) So um, yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's a relatively simple concepts, like we take care of each other and then like, we'll all be fine, but something I'm struggling with and, so uh, the way I build my business is by going door to door. 
and it's very intrusive to people's lives. I show up um, and they think I'm trying to get them to sell their house, but really I'm just marketing my business and trying to make introductions with people. But something I do struggle with is what you said, what you just said before um, rings out to me is that not only is these, do these changes create a better society, but it also has to be done. I mean, like Elon Musk says, it's not a matter of when, like if we're going to switch to renewables, it's just a matter of when, but as an American and as, as Americans, we're very tied to this idea of freedom and we're always concerned with, with governments or individuals trying to take our way our freedom. And I am, I'm a very great example of that. I'm obsessed with having my own business. I don't want anyone telling me how to do what I'm doing. But what I'm struggling with is finding a way to inform people about these issues while also being clear that I don't want to infringe on your freedoms. I don't want to force you to do something. I want you to understand the issue on, I'm still struggling to understand the issue on a fundamental level. But once you understand it, like obviously based on what you just said, you do as well. It's, it's not, it's not if we need to transition, it's, we can't just, if the, if life is a gas tank and we're out of gas, there's no more life. <laughs> so it's like trying to find a way to communicate to people that, Hey, we need to do this, but I'm not, I'm not telling you what to do, man. It's still up to you, which is, it's just troublesome for me. So I'm trying with this podcast and trying to, to teeter the line with my letters and my marketing, but it, I find it very challenging because people are very apprehensive towards anyone telling them how to live a life in a different way. And especially in this country. Yeah. Especially in this country. Um, and was that a question? That's pretty, <laughs> well, that's a big part of where, where, how I've been involved with a dozen different nonprofits over the past 15 years or so um, is largely from kind of the marketing side of the communications as a, yes. you know, as a creative director. I guess I'm asking you for advice. Um, there's a lot of pieces to it. Um, in Boulder right now, um, a major part is trust in confidence in the government and that being run effectively. And I think we in America really are uh, the, the pervading um, messages, oh, government's too big and spends a lot and doesn't, you know, takes away your freedom. Um, I tend to lean that and way. And we need to um, acknowledge that that might be true, but why would then you trash it instead of fixing it? Ah. And we need more people involved. We need more voices. If we've got a system for it, we've got to use it. So right now, the city of Boulder um, has something called the, the CMAP, the Climate Mobilization Action Plan. Yep. And broken down into areas um, that, uh, you know, will, you know, are just useful for explaining what that is. But the idea is in order to create the systems change that is needed to get to our climate goals, there, there are going to have to be some rules and laws and new regulations and programs put into effect that really need people, the population, the citizens of Boulder and Boulder County to go along with. Support. And if you want success there, it's probably a good idea to have input from the citizens on what mm -hmm. that is and have it be more driven by the citizens. And suddenly the government saying, you know what, 
no more um, natural gas in new construction. Yeah. That means, okay, well, there's other ways of, of cooking your food, which are actually way more healthy than having a gas stove. Um, there's other ways to heat your house right now. Um, the mini splits that are heat pump um, technology are actually more cost effective, especially if you power the, the air flow through solar power and can do all these things, but then still, what about putting in my little fireplace that has this ambient? Like people really have a huge resistance to dropping the natural gas side of things, but that's one direction that this city needs to move into. We need to move away from a dying infrastructure and a dying technology. Um, but you need, you know, instead of just slapping that new law on people, it'd be great if people said, yeah, we're ready for that. We want that to happen. Um, yeah. yeah. We want to actually start paying more for this kind of thing so that we're covering the real costs and that we can, we can process the trash, um, compost and that sort of thing properly. Um, uh, because really, you know, there's a lot of, lot of roots to the problem. Um, one is that we have such a bad understanding of real costs yeah. of in this country. Yeah. Um, I was going to mention the carbon tax, which is, seems like a very reasonable solution to me is that you, you pay money when you pollute the environment. Yeah. Um, it's, and then you end up with the, the problems of naming conventions and, you know, you, you don't want to defund the police because you want to reform the police. And then people start saying, oh, they want to get rid of the police. And like, oh, yeah. You know, you put tax in any name and it's going to be a losing battle. But if you change that to a different word and it means the same fee thing. Dividend but, so the fee and dividend is what the That's what um, they call it. Yeah. Good. And, and basically what that's doing is trying to make it more equitable. So if you were to yeah. say tax something and then these low income communities might be hit the hardest, but so you gotta find a way of actually then bring that back to them. Um, so there's gotta be ways of doing that, but really the underlying part of it is if people really understood that all these things that we use to, that we consume for, mm -hmm. for goods, for fun, for energy, um, that we consider cheap are only cheap because we're not paying for them. Our children are. Yeah. We are being subsidized by future generations and by other things like our health. Mm -hmm. So we're actually paying far more for energy. Couldn't agree more. Fossil fuel-based energy than for renewable energy. We're just, we pass the costs off onto a different spreadsheet. And um, we have to really realize that. And then things start making sense. But the problem with making sense is it does actually cost a lot more for mm -hmm. specific line items. But we live in a country where there's supposedly hasn't really been any inflation in years, or we have just the 2% inflation going on. It's like, That's the, the goal, yeah. Like, yeah, maybe for a factory farm chicken or, or head of lettuce, Mm -hmm. But how much of houses gone up in that time? Right, twenty percent a year practically in Boulder. So that's um, why I'm here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we have um, major inflation depending on how you look at it. And every time we have any of these bailouts, we're doing it again. We're we're 
borrowing from the future, the future generations and hurting, you know, the, the value of the dollar for them. So we have to find ways, which is why the whole CMAP process or the CMAP um, is divided up. It has the, the typical, the, the intuitive ones like land use, ecosystems, energy systems, yeah. circular material economies, but it also has finance. Mm -hmm. You can't do any of these things without figuring out how to pay for them. And yeah. then what the city realizes, but all of these issues, we have to look at through a lens of equity and resilience, because if mm -hmm. it isn't creating resilience then it doesn't pass the muster. And if it's not equitable, then it also isn't working for us. Gotcha. So, um, so that makes what was a simple thing into a really complex puzzle of how you fit all these different parts together. Right. And wow. why we think that it's helpful to have another, um, another coach out there kind of mapping this out and directing things and seeing if we can get people to go in the right direction and, and to really understand the plays. And um, so that's kind of where we are with boulder.earth. Mm -hmm. But um, there's, there's back to kind of, I think where you were going and talking about, there are pretty easy things that every individual can do. And yeah. I know I and my family have tried to do them. We've, really, we've insulated our home, made it really efficient. Um, and we have solar panels, we have uh, two electric cars, well, electric car and a plug-in hybrid. Beautiful. So we're probably more than 50% renewable based okay. in terms of our energy consumption. Um, and I have a garden, I have my own compost pile, my own kombucha, and all kinds of things like that. Um, you know, I take a five minute shower or whatever, but yeah. when, you start giving, up. when you start giving people a whole set of instructions of here's what you need to do to be green and not accept that plastic wrapper and take your own you know, stainless steel mug to the coffee shop. Um, uh -huh. Then we're sort of placing the blame for the climate crisis on regular consumers. Uh -huh. And we're not going to get anywhere with individuals making each of those little, little contributions on their own. We have to have widespread systems change. I agree. That means the government has to be involved and uh -huh. society has to be involved. And there actually has to be a huge cultural shift, which is what's kind of preventing it from happening. Yeah. And that, that makes it, you know. Challenging. Yeah. No kidding. Well, thanks for sharing today, Mark. I, every, I love what rewatching these and giving me something to think about, but. I guess I wanted to ask you kind of at the end here. So you've been working in the nonprofit space, it sounds like, for at least three decades. Is that right? Something like that. Involved. <laughs> if you consider the magazine, which was not that we didn't make a profit. Um, <laughs> sure. Why not? Just for, for all you've been sick. I'm a musician and uh, actually made pretty good money playing music. But And we're, we're going to talk about that a little bit right here after. I'm just curious how you stay positive after years of watching these issues slowly like just get like a step better every day when i'm putting like hours and hours and hours and tons of brain energy into how to solve these problems and i'm already like this past week i've already gotten like a bit exhausted i i spent some time studying 
um, the mass extinction that's going on. It got me all messed up in the head. I'm just curious how you stay positive when you you've been to uh, have you been to these countries to actually install wells yourself or were you just no I, I I haven't and gotcha um, I mean after the fact I've been to several countries yeah. um, Southeast Asia. How do you keep going, man? How do you, how do you just um, keep keep doing what you're doing? By making sure to go outside and um, do the things That's that huge. I love to do. Um, I, I, I know, I, I mean, I get really frustrated a lot and I spend a lot of sleepless nights thinking about, well, what's the best thing and uh-huh. what can I be focused on? Um, but I do find that digging in the ground, digging like soil on your bare hands. Gardening. Is hugely helpful for your health and your sanity. And then also doing something creative. So painting and playing music is big for me. And then also being active, hiking, skiing, mountain biking. Um, those things will help you realize that, oh, well, we still have all this. Yes. Um, yes. Another thing, you know, I've recently read, read some books that you know, kind of disturbing when you're reading them about the history of, in America, these historical fiction books and be like, oh man we've got such a bad history and we need to like Joe Biden said, or president Biden said, change is hard. We have to remember and uh, remembering is hard. And we don't really like to remember. A lot of people have never even been taught the history of this country um, and the colonial, what really was driven by colonialism. And Mm -hmm. This is one of those mentalities where we need a real cultural shift and change um, from accepting that it's okay to extract and exploit, extract from the land and and environment and exploit people. And our entire lifestyle and community um, economy is based on exploitation and extraction. And that's why we're really struggling right now with you know, where's the economy going? Where's, why is there so much unrest? Why do we have so much inequality? And it's because we're making the shift from, from extraction and exploitation-based economy to the new economy of, of resilience. And Human um, so reading those books can kind of make you like get disturbed, but then you also see, well, geez, it was, it was way worse a hundred years ago. And, right. Correct. And yeah, we're still facing the same problems, but there is a lot of better in the world. Um, well, especially if you start looking around the world, there's a lot that would, I mean, um, a lot less poverty and a lot less recently, you know, um, whether it is in Africa or Asia, um, there is more balance. But yeah. when you come back to the United States, we're actually going the opposite direction. And, How do you mean? And there's more inequality happening in in the united states right, so right, right. The where it's going opposite worldwide the united states is going the wrong direction and the united states is a leader the united states for example the united states and and great britain are the mm-hmm. only two modernized like modern industrial nations that have declining wealth declining income and declining um life expectancy those are all sim- signs of a healthy um, society. So mm-hmm. we're, we're failing society. And we have, like, our health is terrible in this country. Yeah. 
we spend the most on healthcare. Mm-hmm. Um, so there, we're doing a lot of things wrong and um, could be better. Is the and that switch is not as easy as, I mean, in some ways it'd be easier if we had a, a dictator who just said, we're doing it this way. Yeah. So democracy makes it a little messy. Um, yeah, longer, well, especially when it's so pressing right now that it's we're really reaching a tipping point. I think, as we've seen in recent years, yeah, people are very unhappy and conditions are are rapidly deteriorating. But it's not too late. No, and and it's good. I mean, it's good that we have this unrest and and people are. Yeah. Really, I think you know we could say that people have been waking up for twenty years, but um, I think it's really happening now. Cool. All right, Mark, it, it's been a pleasure having you on. Let's, let's hear about your, your art. You have a website, right? It's called idigart.com. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, so back to, the days of, back to the days of the Daily Planet and Telluride. I think that was my first um, URL that I heard, domain name that I read <laughs> since then, idigart. Um, but as an as a artist, primarily working digital medium, mm-hmm. as a graphic designer and publisher and um that's where it came from but i i really enjoy more working with tactile paint and panels and getting on canvas so um i've been painting a lot and um i definitely i would say i have a style that comes from that combination of digital and um paint um so if i do have a large abstract uh, I'll often work into it some digital elements or image transfers or um, different or, or I'll take a painting and I'll actually look at it in Photoshop to see where I want to go with it and then I'll go back to painting. So um, that's the stuff. I'm that's cool. involved in Open Studios this year and um, have a couple gallery exhibits sort of in the works that I'm planning and I love it. I'd like to get that going more. I think that's great. And I really want to encourage people to have some kind of artistic outlet because I, I do like the way like Kanye West puts it when he talks about Sunday service, how when everyone's singing together, it's like healing. And I think art is really can be that for people. Um, I kind of consider myself an artist when I'm trying to craft the, the perfect business model that rings true to my personality. And I've done that through real estate and through climate action and through the podcasts and all that stuff. But I think people who either if they make videos or they make websites or they do painting, I think everyone having this kind of outlet, especially with all this kind of lunacy and madness going on around the world can be really healing and make you wait. You, when you're done, you feel like your emotion and your, your strife, whatever has, has come out into something. And I've seen, I think we've seen some of the greatest works of art from the most distressed individuals. So I just, I thought that would be a nice way to kind of end, end the show. Just talking to you about, I kind of, I really liked some of your paintings. So I thought I wanted to bring it up. Yeah. Well, I, thank you. Um, I think art also helps communicate messages and it can be pretty subtle or um, built in, but that's, important way of doing it people are very busy and they need to see things so yeah um but it's all about I, connection and, and networking and bringing people together to understand what's going on right and being creative and i think the key to art is knowing or accepting that really there are no mistakes and um right. and being 
willing to kind of go for it and try something out instead of not, you know, we got to keep moving here. And yes. We don't know really what the best way of doing it. And pretty much every technology we've created has come back to harm us um, <laughs> after 50, 100 years or so. Um, but you got to keep, you got to keep trying something. And moving. Yeah. Just staying still or sticking with the same things is not going to do it for us. So. No. And I appreciate you for doing that and keeping on fighting the good fight and coming on the podcast and sharing your thoughts with me today. It's, it's been a real pleasure, Mark. It was nice to meet you. Yeah, thanks for doing this. No worries. All right, everyone. We'll be back next week, as always. Take it easy. Thanks so much for listening to Changing the Climate, a podcast hosted by Climate Change Realty, the most innovative real estate corporation ever conceptualized. Visit ccrboulder.com today.